to be seated. We are in our second week in this amazing parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 15. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke 15 if you'd like to follow along with me. Last week we looked at the younger brother. This week we will look at the elder brother. And uh, then next week we'll come back and look at the father and the God who is revealed not only through this parable but through the two shorter parables that Jesus tells just before this one in Luke 15 as well. So last week, as we looked at the younger brother, we got through what I was calling Act 1 through verse 24. And today we'll start in verse 25. And this parable, at this point, shocks us. And the shock is not peripheral to the parable. It's actually the reason that Jesus tells this story, this shocking reality. Uh, And we're, we're drawn to the shock by the asymmetry with what has come before in the previous two parables before this one. Um, We think this is a story all about the younger brother. It's kind of known as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Uh, But it's actually about two sons and a father. And this differs from the two little parables about the lost sheep and the lost coin right before it. Because in those two parables, there's something that's found. And then the person who found it, the shepherd and the woman, invite others to come in and rejoice. And we've got that same pattern here in this parable. The younger son is found. And then the father kills the fattened calf and throws a banquet and people, the village, are coming in to rejoice. But then we get this in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. This is the asymmetry. It doesn't match the other two. Meaning this is what all of Jesus' work in chapter 15 is pointing toward. And the shock is this, that at the end of the story, the good guy, the dutiful elder brother, is on the outside. And the rebel, the younger brother, is on the inside, sitting at the the table, having a banquet with his father and the villagers. Which means this, that you can be good and be a rebel and be lost. Jesus, remember, is telling these three parables to the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling. We read about this in verses 1 and 2 of the text. They were grumbling that he welcomed sinners. They were upset that he was feasting and enjoying table fellowship with the very people they thought God would despise. And so Jesus is putting this parable together, these parables together, to bring it to this point to teach us about the elder brother as a way of putting the spotlight on the Pharisees and scribes who are listening to him. Now, one of the things that this means just from the outset is that um, if we think that Christianity is about being a good person, this parable actually shows us that we've missed the point. And I would bet if you go out to Boston, you know, this afternoon and you you connect with just 10 people at random and you say, hey, what is Christianity all about? That the answer they'll probably give you is like, well, it's about being good. Or they might even describe something like, you know, I I think I've done some bad things in my life and some pretty good things in my life. And uh, I trust that God will kind of help me overcome the bad things and that he'll come to see the really good things that I've done. And Uh, And that things will be okay in the end. And that's just not the the message of the Bible. It's not the message of Christianity. It's a kind of contemporary, kind of folk version of this faith. But it's not our faith. And so we get to look at this story. We get to look at the elder brother to unpack this. What what, what does it mean to be lost and yet be good? How does that work? So we'll, we'll see a few things as we look at this together. We'll see first just the sin of the elder brother. Try to understand what that sin is. And then second... We'll look at how that's manifest in his heart and attitudes. 
maybe so that we can begin to detect that in our own lives as well. And then third and finally, we'll come to see what Christianity actually is all about as well and what can overcome that heart and that sin. So first, let's think about the elder brother's sin. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. As he came near and drew near to the house, or as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants. I think it's a better translation there of one of the young boys. There would likely be a a band of young boys from the village because the village is now starting to come for the feast. The fattened calf. Remember, we talked last week, this was a a meal that would would feed at least over 100 people. And so they were starting to gather, and there would probably be boys from the town. And the older brother comes in and asks one of these young boys what these things meant, this music and this dancing. And this boy said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. To understand the sin of the elder brother, we need to get underneath his anger and ask, well, why is he angry? There are two probably leading reasons here in reading this parable. The first would be economic. Uh, Everything that was left in in the household was rightfully his. The younger brother had taken his portion, sold it, liquidated it, and gone off to a far country, squandered it. So everything was his, and now the father has killed the fattened calf and is throwing a feast at the older brother's expense. That'd be pretty upsetting. You know, this is my stuff. Why are you using my stuff for somebody I don't like anyway? So he'd be, he'd be angry about that, but underneath that, I think there's a bigger reason that he's angry that un- uncovers much of the elder brother's heart. Is this action of the father has offended the elder brother's sense of honor. This was an honor-shame culture. One's honor meant everything. And to maintain the honor of the family in this traditional setting in a Middle Eastern village, the, the younger brother needs to pay the penalty for his ridiculous and rebellious actions. He should be punished. But the father welcomes the younger brother home and doesn't make him pay a penalty or grovel, but instead he honors him, he kills the fattened calf for him, he puts the best robe on him, he gives him a ring, he puts shoes on his feet. And to the elder brother, this dishonors the family and dishonors him. In addition, the father's actions undercut the elder brother's whole reason for serving the father in the first place. You say, well, what is that? Why is he serving the father? And this gets us to the heart of the elder brother a bit more. It seems that he's serving the father for what he could get in return. One of the things he can get in return is honor and a good reputation. And perhaps verse 29 indicates even a young goat so that he can have a party with his friends. Makes sense. In in a traditional village culture that valued honor above all else, the elder brother's path to that honor of staying near to the father, of doing his duty, was the surest way for him to make a name for himself. It's not serving the father for the father's sake. Not from a heart of love. Not out of a delight in and for the father. But for what he can get. Elder brothers serve God for what they can get in return. A couple of illustrations of this. One from John Steinbeck's classic novel, East of Eden. The twins of Adam Trask, the protagonist of the novel, Cal and Aaron. They're about 10 years old at the time. And Cal is kind of mean and nasty, and Aaron's got this virtuous streak. And, and they'd just been interacting, and, and, and Cal had been convicted by his innocent brother, twin brother, about how mean and cruel he could be. 
and he'd been convicted and he comes into his bedroom after eavesdropping on his father's conversation in spite of this conviction that had just come on him that day and he prays in this way he says dear lord let me be like aaron don't make me mean i don't want to be if you'll let everybody like me why i'll give you anything in the world and if i haven't got it why i'll go for to get it i don't want to be mean i don't want to be lonely for jesus sake amen do you hear the key part of that prayer if you will let everybody like me it's the heart of an elder brother even through the lens of a child in his book on this parable Tim Keller points to Peter Schaefer's play Amadeus and, and um, talks about the bargain that a young composer Salieri makes with God in that play. And this is Salieri's prayer. Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous through the world, dear God. Make me immortal. After I die, let people speak my name forever with love for what I wrote. In return, I vow I will give you my chastity my industry, my deepest humility, even every hour of my life. And I will help my fellow man all that I can. It's the heart of the elder brother. It's a bargain with God. Both Cal and Salieri say, God, look, I'll do these things for you. I'll give you my life if you'll come through and give me what I really want. That is, give me what really is my God. Elder brothers often just use God to be a pawn in their greater scheme of getting life as they see it on their own terms. The father to the elder brother in this story is just a means to a self-appointed end. And the elder brother's goodness is just an attempt at controlling the father and, and putting him in his debt so that he can get what he really wants, which is honor, a good name, and maybe even a goat to celebrate. What that means about elder brothers is that they do good, not for the sheer goodness of it or for God, typically, but rather for themselves. When they serve and tell the truth, they do it for themselves. And though their actions may be morally good, the fundamental sickness of the human heart, and we see it both in the younger and the elder brother, is self-centeredness. And that self-centeredness remains untouched. The elder brother, in his self-centeredness, is in just as much control of his life as the younger brother was in taking his possessions and going off. He is being his own savior. And God is just a servant in that process. It's a life of self-salvation that is the elder brother's great sin. And it's subtle. It's not actually all that different from the younger brother, uh, despite their wildly divergent behavior. Both of them are using God to get what they really want. The younger brother is a free-spirited rebel and goes off to find life. The elder brother is a moral conformist who follows the norms of society and culture to win for himself the identity and honor that he thinks will bring him rest. Both of them are lost. Both of them are equally rebels. Both of them have misunderstood the heart of the father. And both of them deeply insult the father as well. We see it more obviously in the younger brother's insult, don't we, when he asks for the possessions and he goes away. But the elder brother's insults are there. In verse 28, we read, but he was angry and refused to go in. We might read over that pretty quickly. Well, he refused to go in. And in this kind of Middle Eastern traditional village life, that would have been a great offense, a public insult to the father. The father's thrown a party. 
elder brothers in that culture were to be the great host of the party. And this elder brother wouldn't even go in. Furthermore, look at verse 29, when he begins to speak to his father, he doesn't address his father with a, 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 with a title of respect or calling him father. He won't even call him father. He just says, look, in verse 29. Disrespectful and insulting. It's interesting. So both the younger brother and the elder brother insult the father. Both are rebellious, both are lost. But at the end of the story, who's on the inside? It's the younger brother. He's at the banquet feasting with the father. Who's on the outside? It's the elder brother. Maybe it seems to, be that Je- seems to me that Jesus is making the point that the elder brother's rebellion is a bit more even dangerous than the younger brother's because it's insidious. It's harder to detect. I was in Southern Africa in 1997. I did some traveling through Mozambique for a while by bus going up the country. And it was about five years after the long 15-year civil war had ended. And there were signs all over the beaches and around the towns that said, like, be careful mines. And I kept thinking, well, how am I going to be careful of something I can't see? The rebellion of the elder brother is like a mine. It's buried underneath, but it is deeply destructive. The, the uh, younger brother's rebellion is more like a tank. You can see it coming and you know to run. But the elder brother's rebellion is deep. Both are projects of self-salvation. Both are in control. Both missing the heart of the father. So what are some of the signs, as we think about this in our own lives, what are some of the signs, secondly now, about the elder brother's rebellion? Where do we see that coming out in his heart? I'll just point out three things here uh, briefly. First, we see anger and resentment lurking beneath the surface. So verse 28, we've read it already. He was angry and he refused to go in. The elder brother's life is fueled by anger. When things don't go as planned, the elder brother explodes. When things aren't what he thinks they should be, he gets upset. He felt the father was indebted to him and owed him. But when the father honors the younger brother in this egregious way, the elder brother is furious. This is this kind of gift and grace that the father is showing to the younger brother doesn't comport with the elder brother's view of the world, which is this simply, you earn what you get. I've earned it. That's the elder brother's heart. And so he's upset and angry. And that gives us a window. Elder brother's hearts are not just sorrowful when things don't go their way. They are angry and resentful bitter, have a hard time maintaining any kind of faith when life doesn't work out as it was supposed to. We can feel this. God, I've served you. I've remained chaste. I haven't cheated at school or at work. I'm not dating people who don't know you. But this, this is how it all ends up. This is what's happened. What's the deal? God, I've been faithful all these years? Why why is this what I end up with? That's the heart of the elder brother. Second thing is the elder brother manifests this in, in a sense of superiority over others. Notice in verse 30 that when he's talking to the father about what's going on, he doesn't actually call this person who's come home his brother. He says, but when this son of yours, he won't associate with him, he won't call him his brother, he looks down on him, he sees himself as better than him. Think about what happens three chapters later in Luke 18 when you have the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men like this tax collector. Elder brothers see themselves as elevated above the crowd by their own superiority and moral uprightness. They've seem to earn a place, at least in their own minds, of being on top and being above and looking down on. And they're 
The heart of an elder brother is judgmental and self-satisfied toward others. One way, though, that that manifests itself is an exaggeration of the sins of others and an inability to see the logs in one's own eye. Notice in verse 30 as well that the elder brother's recounting, and this is the only time we hear about it in the parable, Uh, So this is a fair read. I'm following a a mid-20th century Egyptian commentator on this. He he says that when the elder brother says that that this son has devoured your property with prostitutes, that this is an exaggeration. Uh, Ibrahim Said says he volunteers this exaggeration in order to label his brother with this polluted accusation. Elevating the sins of another. We don't know for sure if that's true or not. There's nothing in the story that suggests that it would be or that it wouldn't be. So I think it's a fair reading that the elder brother is exaggerating the sins of his younger brother. And we should note, when we think that we're better than others, it's not a far step from there to mistreating and abusing others. Behind all classism and racism is the heart of an elder brother, where we think that we are better than those people or that person. And that then is just the quick step to being able to mistreat and abuse someone else. Elder brothers could be merciless pursuing justice to the end, and withholding forgiveness. Another dimension of this is that we do what's good, elder brothers, with dryness and drudgery. The word that he uses in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you, is the word that would be appropriate to a slave or a servant. It says a lot about how the elder brother views his relationship with his father, that Look, I'm just in the same category as a hired servant or a slave. I'm just doing my duty. I'm getting through. I'm doing what's expected of me. And that's all I can do. It's a joyless, uninspired, dry drudgery in his relationship with the Father. Now, let me say this. Uh, I think it's easy sometimes to talk about the younger brother and the elder brother and start making everybody feel like you're either one or the other. If you are in Jesus here... You are neither the the younger brother nor the older brother. You are a beloved child of God adopted into his family by grace through faith. And that is the amazing news of the gospel. And yet, having said that, we all, don't we, begin to identify in some way with this kind of heart. And I think this one is in particular because it's so insidious, it's so dangerous, especially if you've been around for a while, if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, that this kind of heart of an elder brother can begin to seep into your soul. Do you find there's anger and resentment toward God, if you're honest, about the way life might be working out? Do you have a sense of superiority over others, maybe in the church or out in the world? You know, they're just so messed up, they don't have it together like I do. Is there any sense of drudgery and dryness in the way that you're relating to the God of heaven and earth? Does it feel just like a duty, thankless duty in a way? It's important, I think, to ask these questions of our own hearts and allow God to work on us by his grace. I mean, what, as we turn into the, the third point and our final one, if being good, you can be lost, and that isn't the heart of Christianity, then what is? And that's what we see, actually, in this story in amazing ways. We saw it last week so powerfully with the younger brother, but we see it here with the older brother as well. It's the costly love of God that bridges the chasm between rebels like us who are undeserving of his grace, of his presence, and invites us to feast at his banquet table. 
And it's only, and this is so important for the dynamics of the Christian life, it's only the love of God, the costly, sacrificial, suffering love of God, it's only that that can sever the nerve, that can cut off the life source of sin that grows within the heart. The sin of the younger brother and the sin of the elder brother. It's only the love of God that can transform rebels to sons whose self-centeredness is broken, whose control is, 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 is relinquished, who then trust in the God of heaven and earth who loves and loves and loves and embraces and kisses and forgives and honors. That's the only thing that can break the power of sin. In Act 1, last week, we saw that it was the costly love of the Father in two ways in particular. They're subtle, but they're there. The first was in being willing to grant the younger son's request and to give him his share of the inheritance while he was still alive and to do so with, with graciousness. And the second was when the son returned, the father, remember, he ran, something that Oriental patriarchs would not do in that day, in that culture. They would be, it would be too shameful to do so. But he ran to the edge of the town and he met the younger brother at the edge of the town. Well, in this case, in Act 2... With the self-righteous and smug elder brother, we see the same thing. The father humiliates himself again by leaving his guests, something they would not do in that day. The head of the home would not do that in that day. And goes out to the rebellious elder brother who has already publicly insulted his father by not coming into the banquet. And he goes out to him. We read in verse 28, his father came out and entreated him. He overlooks the offense of the elder brother, takes the cost of it upon himself, and then entreats the elder brother to come into the banquet. He pleads with him. He appeals with him. And that's how the story ends in these amazing words in verses 31 and 32. This is the entreaty of the father to the son, to the rebel, to the lost one, though who was on the inside but was still lost. He says, son. By the way, that's a term of great warmth and affection in the Greek. It's not the normal word for son. This son wouldn't even call him father. And the father comes to him and begins with a warm, affectionate word of child, son. You are always with me. And all that I have is yours. Honestly, that might be the best verse in the Bible. Um, <laughs> you are always with me. The elder brother has missed the point, and we do too sometimes, when we start to focus on circumstances and trophies and idols and things that we think that we need and we make demands upon God and we take control. Son, you're always with me. From Genesis to Revelation, the message of the Bible is simple. God is your treasure and life nothing else and the elder brother has missed that heart that reality there's a psalm where in psalm 73 when the psalmist is looking out at the world and he sees the wicked prospering and he's wrestling deeply with that he, he starts to think that he's about to speak out of his anger that the world just doesn't seem just that the wrong people are getting blessed he goes into the sanctuary of God and he says these words as he begins to get perspective. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then he says, but for me, it is good to be near God. 
The gift of the gospel is that the God who is holy has come near to enable us to be with him. And the elder brother has lost that. And the father says, son, you're always with me. There is nothing else. And then he goes on to say, all that I have is yours. What else could you want? All that is mine is yours. I was on the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River for many days with Chloe in 2019 going through the Grand Canyon. It was toward the end of the trip and I was on the boat by myself and I was just looking up at the walls of the canyon. I mean, the, the Grand Canyon, for those of you who have been there, is just, you know, it's all of God's creation is beautiful, but that sort of tops them all in a way. It's just the grandeur and the magnitude. And I was looking up the walls and I, I just had that hymn come into my mind at that time and just kind of joyfully, this is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings. This music of the spheres, this is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. Father's saying, look, son, everything that you see, all that is mine is yours. For all things are yours, Paul says, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. What else do you want? A young goat? To party with your friends? You've got it all. That's the heart of the gospel. And it's that alone. It's the God who is life. Who takes shame and guilt upon himself in the person of his son so that we might be his. That alone that can break the power of sin. That can soften the hardened heart of the elder brother that can undo the scheming of the younger brother who wants to earn his reputation back and pay the debt. It is the love of God in Christ and that alone that can transform us from servants and slaves to sons and daughters. At the end of the day, all of us have these tendencies of the heart of the younger brother and the heart of the elder brother in our own hearts. And we shouldn't draw the distinction too strong. We all know that younger brothers can be found and quickly become self-righteous older brothers. And the, the cycle can go on. It is the love of God in Christ that is at the heart of the Christian faith. This isn't about being good. Yeah, it's about becoming like Jesus. But all of that is built on the foundation of the fact that there is a God who embraces lost and rebellious sons and daughters like us and takes the cost of doing so upon himself who embraces us kisses us clothes us and says i want you to feast at my table and this parable leaves us not getting an answer about what the elder brother's response would be will he come in and feast or in his self-righteous smugness, will he continue to miss the heart of the Father? May we be a people who are warmed, conquered, transformed by the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this amazing gift of a story that Jesus told so long ago, for how we see ourselves in it. We thank you for your incredible and amazing love that has made a way for us to be with you always. For those of us here this morning 
who are your sons and daughters, I pray that we would once again be awakened to the joy of being in your presence through Christ in the Spirit, through his cross. And for those, Lord, who perhaps have never known you really, who still find themselves lost, but who know you've been coming and searching, that you're looking out with compassion, longing for them to return home, whether they're elder brothers or younger brothers. Lord, I pray even now that your grace and love would break through their defense and that they would simply accept the gift of your love through Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.